Good evening, everyone, and thank you for joining us tonight for number six in John Weston's series of Things That Matter. Tonight promises to be a vibrant, stimulating, and thought-provoking evening. As you know, this event focuses on the economy, and we have two special guests here tonight, MP Ed Fast and Mr. Ian Meller, who will be sharing their thoughts on this subject. My name is Vivian Bromley, and I have had the utmost pleasure of working with John Weston during his many years as MP serving West Vancouver, Sunshine Coast, Sea to Sky Country. I can personally attest to John's service to the people. Incredible volumes of work came into each office day in and day out. And since we're talking about the economy tonight, I wanted to share my personal recollections and experiences regarding John's work in the area of helping small businesses in the riding. When John attended Chamber of Commerce meetings in Whistler, he learned of the plight of employers, fine staff and temporary foreign workers for all aspects of their tourism-based industries. John listened to, the, listened to them and he took their messages to Ottawa and he went to bat for them. When the owner of a Tim Hortons franchise in Squamish came to John with a similar issue, John once again went to bat for him bringing at that time Minister Jason Kenney to the area and engaging him with the stakeholders in a roundtable discussion. In West Vancouver, our office was contacted by a very frantic small business owner whose spring line of children's clothing was being held up by Canada Customs. They quoted her three months before her shipment would be released, which would render her spring inventory absolutely useless. John intervened and the small business owner received her goods in 10 days. These are just a very few small examples of John's excellent work and how he has made a difference to businesses. We all want to make a difference, especially now. So with that in mind, please volunteer and donate what you can to John's campaign by visiting his website at www.johnweston4, and that's the number four, mp.ca. Thank you. John, over to you. Well, thanks Vivian. And I love saying that there's no I in team and we had a great team of people to serve the constituents. When I had the honor to be a member of parliament, you were a key person there. And we did interact with uh, thousands of people and regularly with small business people. So I'm glad that you remind us of that experience this evening. I'm grateful for you, I'm grateful for our guests, but especially Ed, since you're in Ottawa and the evening is not young for you. Uh, I get the honor of introducing you in a minute as well as Ian, uh, but first I, I wanted to add just a little more context for this evening's event. Our audience for these events has grown steadily. I'm really grateful to each of you who's tuned in this evening. Your support and your questions and your feedback have helped us pursue our goal of true excellence in providing thought-provoking relevant discussions about things that matter, which of course is the name for the series. And as in the case of past episodes, the recording of tonight's event will by Monday appear on our site. As in tonight's panel, some of the nation's most innovative thinkers have joined us in these discussions on national health and fitness, national security, 
foreign affairs, the environment, and our last episode with party leader Aaron O'Toole on the topic of leadership. If you want to tune into that, you will find a really great introduction of Aaron. You'll see how casual and authentic and uh, just purely intelligent he is in grasping the issues that people care about. The next event after tonight's is about equality and excellence on June 3rd. Uh, Mark Milkey, uh, um, the author, Ellis Ross, the MLA, and Joanna Barron, the executive director of the Constitution Foundation, will be our guests. Uh, I saw Mark last night in action at the Churchill Society. Incredible speaker. Uh, I think you'll enjoy that a lot. So why have we designed and delivered this series? It arose in response to a growing sense that we as Canadians have lost our way in recent years, a process accelerated by the pandemic. Instead of government, we've witnessed this peculiar self-destructive trend of public soul searching by those who ought to be responsible for our peace order and good government. I don't know about you, but for me, the result has been this hollowing out of Canada as an attractive place for business and investment. Our prime minister has articulated dreamy prospects of social engineering, but ignored basic elements of fiscal responsibility. So in our COVID silos, we focus on staying physically healthy while shadows of anxiety creep into our lives that post pandemic Canada may cease to hold the shining Canadian promise deserved by our children and our grandchildren. Like me, you may be vexed that our debt now exceeds $1 trillion. And I'm just talking about the federal government debt. Ian's gonna go into the broader debt. One trillion? Well, that's one with 12 zeros after it. Based on our population of over 38 million, each man, woman, and child in Canada owes over $26,000 in federal debt. Responding to this concern, this is what my friend and accountant, Klaus Jensen, had to say. He says, using the population of Canada is not meaningful because only about 18 million people actually pay any income taxes in Canada, and about 21% of Canadians pay 80% of all personal income taxes collected. Using 18 million people as the base doubles the amount of debt per person. Use 8 million, the number of Canadians who pay a disproportionately high amount of overall taxes, and it's obviously much, much worse. And Klaus goes on, he says, relate cumulative debt to future generations. And this is where I hope young people are on the line listening. So you take everybody under 50, for instance, and take them as the base, calculate the debt per person, who will have to pay the debt back? Well, my generation won't be paying any debt back because Justin Trudeau is pillaging the system on our behalf, much to the detriment of our children and grandchildren. So the numbers we're talking about, they're in addition to the debt of other levels of government and personal household debt. Based on our government's own projections, Canada is on track by 2025 to owe $40 billion in debt service charges, $40 billion. And that is if interest rates continue at their historical low. The amount we Canadians pay in taxes to cover interest expenses is set nearly to double within five years. Who's gonna pay those taxes? How will the increased tax burden erode our already beclouded investment climate? Well, I'm hoping we can get some answers tonight. These concerns, among other things, have made me run once again for Member of Parliament and to produce this Things That Matter series. 
Such a level of commitment may not be for everyone, but at least by showing up tonight, you're expressing your concern too. And I thank you for doing so. Knowing many of you in the audience personally, I can vouch for the immense commitment of you and other Canadians to secure Canada's future. Throughout our event tonight, I invite you to put your questions to Ed, Ian, and me. Put them in the Q&A channel in the bottom corner of your screen. And I'll be, do my best to get to them. I support the Conservative plan to secure our future by creating an economic environment that promotes business growth, job creation, accountability, and a budget balanced over the next decade. I'm delighted that on our show two weeks ago, Aaron O'Toole specifically committed to a comprehensive environment plan to reduce emissions, protect our future, create good jobs for Canadians, all of this within an expanded economy. So you can see that interview on our website, as I mentioned. Well, this brings me to introduce one of my favorite members of parliament. I pointed to some of the doom and gloom that characterizes the perspective of many Canadians as we look beyond the pandemic. If there's one person I've always been able to count on for an optimistic yet realistic view of the future, it's our guest this evening. Ed Fast's professional and political accomplishments are well known. He was a busy, successful lawyer, but he still found time to serve his community as an Abbotsford City Councillor and School Trustee. He was first elected as MP for Abbotsford in 2006. Under Prime Minister Stephen Harper, he was one of our key ministers, holding the international trade portfolio from 2011 to 2015, and I got to see him in action. The Harper government was instrumental in increasing the number of countries with which Canada has free trade agreements from five to 51, including with the European Union, South Korea, and the Trans-Pacific Partnership countries of Asia. In 2015, Ed became Canada's longest serving trade minister. And earlier this year, Aaron O'Toole made the very intelligent decision to appoint him to be the Conservative Party's shadow minister of finance. So those are public accomplishments that you might be able to read about on the internet. But let me relate a story that tells you more about Ed the person. And Ed, I don't know if you remember these events, but um, they really touched me. I believe it was around Christmas time, the first year I was elected back in 2008. And I'd seen Ed and four other MPs, the so-called MP5 group, liven up our caucus meeting with their first class musical performance of offbeat original songs and classic Christmas carols. Their group sang together and they were really, really good. They provided a lively medley of original and other music and they gave a sense of humanity to the, the whole of Parliament Hill. Well, Ed's human, cultural and personal side had already shone through for me. But a few days after the event, we were at a party hosted by the Prime Minister and Lorraine at 24 Sussex Drive. And there was a moment when MPs kind of thronged the PM wanting a word with him or seeking a photo. And maybe that was normal. But I saw Ed hang back, calm, confident, and at peace with himself. He who would become Canada's longest serving trade minister didn't need that. So Ed Fast, now finance critic, welcome the things that matter. Over to you, Ed. Well, John, it is a real pleasure to be on your webinar and to see you throw your hat in the ring once more. When I heard that you were willing to uh, involve yourself in public service once again, I was thrilled because 
You know, in your time in Ottawa, serving the residents of West Vancouver, Sunshine Coast, Sea to Sky Country, um, you were so well loved for the spirit that you brought to our caucus and to government. And uh, I'm very grateful for your friendship that we have maintained all these years, but also the fact that we share a passion about this country. This is a good country. It has good people in it. And there's so much to work with. Maybe we'll get into that as we get into our discussion tonight. Uh, the subject of our evening, I believe, is rebuilding our economy, rebuilding Canada post-pandemic. And that's, that's a huge project for us Canadians to undertake. And it's going to require a plan. And as I've mused about what this will take to get us to the other side of the pandemic and get our economy back up and going, give people hope and a sense of confidence for the future, there are a number of things that came to mind. First thing we have to do as a country and as governments we have to help Canadians, struggling Canadians, get through the remainder of the pandemic because we're not through this by a long shot. Given the fact that we're, you know, we're in the middle of a third wave, there could be a fourth wave looming. Uh, the variants are continuing to wreak havoc. And we have to make sure we're there for Canadians to get them through, which is why we as Conservatives have been supportive of the Trudeau government's Emergency programs, the wage subsidy, the rent subsidy, HASCAP, there's a whole range of these support programs that have been implemented. And by the way, the design hasn't always been great, but we've supported those programs nonetheless. We've contributed to improving those programs as time went by. And these are important to get Canadians to the other side of the pandemic. The second thing is we have to get people vaccinated. It's been one of the major failings of this Trudeau government. The fact that they chose to enter into a partnership with the Chinese communist regime in Beijing. It's really unfortunate that they didn't turn to more trustworthy partners. And of course, once the Chinese had our research, they said, oh, we're really not interested in sharing this vaccine with you. Um, and today we face a situation in Canada where only 3% of Canadians are fully vaccinated, when in fact 34% of the U.S. is vaccinated. And that has put them way ahead of the curve. They're opening their economy. You see their baseball stadiums, they're full. Here in Canada, we're still in the grips of lockdowns. And we do need to get Canadians vaccinated post-haste. The third thing we need to do is safely and gradually reopen our economy because there are still sectors of our economy that are just struggling. Tourism, for example, hospitality, um, the travel sector writ large, the airline sector, a lot of small businesses still struggling when other you know, industries are actually doing quite well. So we need to safely and gradually reopen the economy so that those sectors can get back on their feet. Fourth thing we need to do is get people back to work. Just this last month in April, we heard that 
We had another setback because 200,000 Canadians lost their jobs. Just as it looked like we were turning the corner, boom, another bad month, which is why we as Conservatives, we do support the Canada Recovery Hiring Program, which is supposed to help businesses transition off of that wage subsidy and hire people so we can get the economy going again. We need to help small businesses back on their feet the Canadian Federation of Independent Business has said that by the time this pandemic is done, somewhere in the order of 240,000 Canadian businesses will have been shuttered forever. Think of the impact that has on our economy, especially when our small businesses are the biggest job creators in the country. And then lastly, what we need to do is we have to manage the huge debt and deficits that we have accumulated over this pandemic period. And you know, when you talk about this massive financial consequence that this COVID pandemic is leaving behind, there's only three ways you can manage this kind of massive indebtedness with all that it entails. You can either cut spending, and you know, when you cut spending, you're actually reducing the programs that Canadians rely on. And that's not something we want to do as a first priority, quite frankly. We don't want to cut spending to the degree where social programs are cut back. The second thing you can do is raise taxes. And you've already seen Justin Trudeau do that. Increasing carbon taxes. There were a number of tax increases in the budget. And quite frankly, we as Conservatives, we don't want to use taxes as a way of managing our massive debt. The third way of doing this, and my preferred option, and Aaron O'Toole's preferred option, and I know John's preferred option, is growth. Robust economic growth. That we don't have to cut spending. That we don't have to increase taxes. That the growth more than makes up for the interest payments, the debt servicing that we have to pay for as a country coming out of the pandemic. How do you do that? How do you generate real growth? It's not by pumping stimulus into the economy, hundreds of billions of dollars of stimulus. That's a fool's game, as many economists have noted. And by the way, the parliamentary budget officer has noted. The way you drive economic growth in Canada and position Canada for long-term success is by enhancing our productivity as a nation and our competitiveness, helping companies to compete on the international stage. There's so many areas that the recent budget could have focused on. Eliminating interprovincial trade barriers, addressing the flight of foreign direct investment from Canada, undertaking regulatory reform, tax reform, investing heavily in infrastructure the way the Harper government did back in 08-09, investing in broadband, in innovation, and in research and development, in a critical mineral strategy, in a natural resource strategy, and perhaps a plan to address the aging population as the baby boomers exit the economy, the labor force. How do we backfill that? These are all questions that John and I and Ian will probably get into, but they're all issues that were not addressed comprehensively 
in the recent budget, which is why I give it a big fail. This last budget, the biggest spending budget in Canadian history, biggest deficit, biggest debt, biggest government. And yet we didn't get the investments in our long-term growth, which is why economists have panned this budget. And John, you and I can get into a full, fulsome discussion about that, but I'll turn it back to you. I'm so grateful that you're a friend. You're someone who shares conservative principles with me. You have a vision for our country. We both do. A vision that is forward-looking, that recognizes we as a country are immensely rich, not only in natural resources, but in human resources, the people that we have, the educational systems we have, the entrepreneurship we have in our country. We have a bright future if we position ourselves correctly, and that may require a change in Ottawa. And I am hoping, John, you're going to be part of that change as we work towards the next election. Well, speaking of change, if you listen closely to Ed's remarks, I think you caught a mini Ed Fast conservative budget that he wants to bring in in the fall after the upcoming federal election. So, uh, Ed, we may look forward to that. And uh, by the way, before I forget, if you want to hear more of Ed's views, and uh, he won't have time to provide them all tonight, Google Ed Fast response to throne speech and Ed Fast response to budget and you'll get two great speeches. This paves the way to my introducing another great thinker, somebody who I've known for an awful long time, somebody who has advised a lot of people on the North Shore in areas of financial planning. He's a senior financial planner himself with Asante. He also founded Miller Financial Group uh, over 30 years ago. Um, he has uh, been active in West Vancouver in many community events. He was the president of the Evergreen Squash Club. He is a longtime member of the Nomads Running Group. And in fact, I believe I met this gentleman first running. And, and uh, ultimately, we did a marathon together in Ottawa. Um, I'll give you a little insight into this gentleman before I name him somebody who ran with me, behind me for the most part of that marathon, and then uh, sprinted his way to make sure he beat me at the end. So you've got a good competitive conservative to hear from. Ian Meller uh, lives in West Vancouver. Uh, he is married to Kim and has three great daughters. Ian, we look forward to hearing from you. John, thank you for that tremendous introduction. I hope you can hear me. I, I Hopefully this will come through all right. But I thank you, Vivian, John, Ed, and fellow conservatives. I'm honored to, to follow Ed Fast. And I must say, just to follow up on what you mentioned, John, I think all of us would do well to watch that federal uh, that speech on the federal budget. Uh, I recommend that he did an excellent job. And it's too bad, Ed, that you are not our finance minister, because I liked your proactive a uh, positive approach to taking apart this budget in such a manner that it gives us hope that one day you'll be in that position and acting uh, in a conservative government. So thank you, John, for allowing me to speak on uh, rebuilding the economy. There's four items which I believe are worth bringing to the attention of our listeners this evening. And John and Ed, you both touched on a lot of these items, but I want to expand a little bit. 
I think the size and significance of Canada's national debt is something that we hear all these numbers, but a lot of people don't recognize that the figure that we're really looking at is larger than even what Ed and what John talked about, because a lot of people don't recognize that we also have obligations on the medical side and also the OAS. And so the numbers that I see as of March 30, 2020 are 2.4 trillion. Now this is $64,000 based upon all three levels of government. And that debt has doubled when it was a trillion. It was 92% GDP servicing at that time in 19, 2007, 2008. It's almost like the, the value of money is like cash is trash these days. It's just such a ridiculous amount of money that we're talking about. But as fathers, uh, all of us are fathers, all of us have children, and we don't want to leave our children with this massive debt. So too often these numbers, if you listen to David Foote, who's an excellent demographer talking about projecting every 10 years into where things are going, you'll see that these costs go up at a compounding rate that is very hard to believe. So we have to have a job, we have our job right now to stop this debt from growing, and as Ed mentioned, to be proactive in getting Canada back to work. Uh, the debt service ratios, everybody talks about the debt service ratio, but the focus of this government is really in terms of staying in, in line with the, uh, the agencies that judge the debt. They never talk about growing the GDP. It's always about staying under the debt service ratio. And uh, in talking a little bit about this uh, cost to service it right now is 49.6 billion based upon 2021 information. If you look at the cost of government debt, uh, as Trudeau says, we're gonna borrow our money so you don't have to use yours. Well, it's all our money. This is all our money. It's not his money. It's all our money that we're having to pay the set. And this debt's costing approximately 2%. So every 1% increase in this debt will cost us another $25 billion a year to service. Um, so it's really uh, on track to exceed this, the deficit's on track to exceed $381.6 billion. And this is more debt that Trudeau's created in his uh, liberal minority government than all the debt cre uh, created by the previous 23 prime ministers. I should mention, I was in the National Energy Policy, got caught in the National Energy Policy Program in Alberta, so I understand the consequences of Trudeau one and what he did to that debt, but he makes uh, the son, makes the father look like he's a, a Scotsman by the way he spent. So it's really sad to see this grow. Uh, the fiscal guardrails rather than fiscal anchors indicate to me as a financial planner that they really don't have any clue as to how they're going to be spending this money. There's money that is sloshing around and leaves there, leaves open uh, opportunities for corruption and other things that are, I think only after the fact we do a post-mortem, we're gonna find more about this. So the liberals continue to use, as I mentioned, this GDP debt servicing ratio as a safety net in comparison to other countries. However, their actions do more to reduce the GDP with less incentives for Canadians to work by our declining productivity and more interest in the government to spend. They seem to think that the government spending is a stimulus uh, over a long term. We, we, one area people don't talk about much is the velocity of money. And velocity of money is extremely important. So if you have a construction project and they put the shovels in the ground and they start digging that project, you can look at the turnover of that money as it goes in back into the economy. So the more, the higher the velocity of money, the more revenue comes back to uh, Canadians and, and of course, it uh, is collected in taxes. So by getting Canadians back to work, we can increase the velocity of money. And of course, at this time during COVID, it's not an, exactly an easy time, but this is something we should be focusing on. Uh, now the significance of inflation is a factor. It's a third item. 
Uh, I don't think personally we're going to see inflation as a factor that's going to affect us on the long term right now. There's too much global debt out there. So if you add a quarter of a point to the global debt, you will take away from global growth. So as much as we're seeing signs of inflation in the U.S. right now, and I know Jerome Powell in the federal is in his position also. Uh, Tiff Macklin are both still keeping their prime rates relatively low. And even though I'm concerned with this inflationary issue, uh, and it certainly would have an adverse effect on our situation, uh, I think we're going to find that it's probably going to be a short-term thing and then it'll continue to, to decline. Uh, so uh, it's very unlikely. I've never seen a case where we've experienced both high unemployment and relatively high inflation at the same time. And I know we talk about inflation back in the early 80s when Volcker had to put on the, the brakes. But remember, those times we had 6 to 7% GDP growth. We're not facing these same types of growth at this time. So under these circumstances, how can Canada rebuild the economy? Now, my work in financial planning involves assessing the resources of my clients, gaining clarity of their clear and tangible goals and meaningful specifics using a specific time dates with an end result in mind. Governments don't have clearly defined time horizons. They go on forever. And obviously, this government is uh, an example of a government that doesn't have any clearly defined goals. And this is very, very sad. Their job in this budget is to get reelected. That's the number one job. And once they're reelected, I think they're going to hit us with a lot of taxes. But this is, a, this is a projection of my thoughts. But there seems to be money that, as I mentioned earlier, $100 billion that nobody seems to know where the money is going to go. Well, this is very, very sad. It's like the bureaucrats that not even the government politicians are setting direction. So the problem with government spending is that continues long, as I mentioned, after the current, and we're all going to have this obligation through our children and through our children's children to pay this off. Now, one of my earlier jobs, when I was younger, I used to row on a rowing team. There's eight men on a rowing team. And you can have powerful rowers on either side. And I've seen this with the rugby players versus the grass hockey players at the rowing club. And guess what? The women actually beat the men. Why? Because the boat was not set up properly and not everybody was working together. As Ed alluded to earlier, if we could just drop the barriers between provinces and include more uh, uh, revenue and more trade between provinces, that between 50 and $130 billion would more than service the cost of the interest on the government debt just by dropping some of those barriers. We see now what's going on with the Alberta oil is actually being possibly stopped in, in going to the east. This is something that obviously they're recognizing the need to bring the east and the west together. So we have so much opportunity. Ed covered it so well. And this administration seems to pull the country apart rather than working in one direction where everybody's working together. So as, a, as I mentioned, it is our job to bring to the attention, I think there's a huge lack of awareness to Canadians in general about the cost of this debt, about the consequences of this debt. And if, as, as Aaron O'Toole mentioned earlier, if we get a million Canadians back to work, in my opinion, uh, and giving them, to, so they're proud of their country. I look at the, the work of, uh, for example, Jim Flaherty and his work as, uh, as you know, when he was in the position uh, as finance minister, we had the TFSA, we had the RDSP, we had these pension splitting. We had the, the, all those things that he did to get Canadians incentivized to do, to be productive. That's the type of finance minister we need. 
somebody, and I can see Ed being that type of guy in uh, in the future government with the conservatives winning. On that note, I'll say no more. And if there's any questions, I'm certainly open to. Thank you very much for allowing me to speak. Thank you. Ian, thank you. You packed a lot in a short time. Uh, and uh, I, uh, you really hit home on the long-term impact of some of these numbers. Um, and you made them even more dire, uh, perhaps, uh, than I thought they were. Uh, I wanna point out, you mentioned at the beginning, fellow conservatives, there are people of all parties on, on this call. Uh, yep. You know, it's, a, it's an open invitation. It's things that matter. And we wanna make sure there's a lively debate. And in that, uh, in that uh, note or context, we've got several questions coming in. Um, I would like first to uh, uh, refer this to you, Ed. Uh, Margaret Stevenson is asking about income splitting between working couples. And uh, this is consistent with another question from James Knight. How do you lower the tax burden for Canadians? So I wonder, you know, it, it, since we've invoked the spirit of Jim Flaherty a few times tonight, uh, if you uh, envisioned our bringing in a budget, how would we do that? Would you support income splitting? Uh, how would you lower the taxes for Canadians? And I'll throw in another uh, question that relates to that because it came up in the Aaron O'Toole discussion. Uh, do you think there's a threat that the Liberals may be taxing capital gains on principal residences? Ed, I think you may be muted. Yes, thank you for those excellent questions. Let me start with uh, income splitting. Uh, I am personally in favor of income splitting between spouses uh, to ensure that we keep the tax burden on couples as low as possible and recognize the fact that couples operate as a household unit. Um, obviously any tax uh, reforms that we undertake as a future conservative government We'll have to take into account the uh, fiscal situation of the country. And both John and I are fiercely committed to getting our debt and deficits under control. Aaron is committed to going back to balance over a 10 year period, which I think is reasonable given all the circumstances. So uh, am I in favor of income splitting? Yes, of course, our former conservative government started down that path. Today's circumstances are such that, boy, I tell you, the challenges facing our country right now, especially from a fiscal standpoint, are significant. And uh, we'd wanna make sure that any steps we take in terms of tax reform, take that into account. Now, the second issue was taxation of home equity. And I know a little bit about this because I've done a lot of investigating. As a member of the finance committee, we've had CMHC in front of us. We had Generation Squeeze in front of us. We had Paul Kershaw from UBC in front of us. Uh, all three of those organizations or individuals have been exploring the ramifications of what they call intergenerational inequity in the housing market. And they're suggesting that given the fact that our tax system incents 
Canadians to keep investing in their homes and to see their homes as an investment vehicle rather than simply a housing option. It has skewed investment towards housing and made housing less affordable for Canadians who don't have the resources to buy into the market. And CMHC is still undertaking this study as we speak. They expect to release their report in June. And I'll be very interested to see what that report says because Generation Squeeze, which is a partner in this report, is on record as saying that they believe that there should be taxation on housing wealth. Now, whether it's on your home equity or whether it's a surtax on the gross value of your house, they haven't actually said what, what they prefer, but they are in favor of taxing housing wealth. CMHC, on the other hand, has denied that they're going to tax housing or that they're going to recommend taxing home equity. Um, I don't know what to make of this one. I do know one thing. I do not trust the Liberal government. And they've put themselves into an incredible squeeze with their mishandling of the debt and deficits of our nation. And they're going to be looking for a way of managing that. And because they don't have a good growth plan in their recent budget, where are they going to go? They're going to go looking for tax revenues. And I would bet my bottom dollar one of those places they're going to look at is a home equity tax. That's my take on it. So look out people who live in West Vancouver, Sunshine Coast, Sea to Sky Country, that could be a huge impact, maybe the biggest impact of our lives in terms of uh, the results of, of tax policy. Uh, Ed, one of the things that you touched on in your response to the budget, uh, and you mentioned it again tonight when you first listed areas where we need to help businesses is tourism. You said in your response to the budget, tourism stakeholders don't want handouts, but they sustain and create good paying jobs. Well, this resonates in the writing that I would represent if I were a member of parliament because we have Pemberton, Whistler, Squamish. In fact, these areas generate a disproportionate percentage of British Columbia's tourism revenue. And as you know, Whistler has been in lockdown. Uh, it's been a shattering experience for the hospitality and the tourism industry. Uh, do you have any thoughts on how we can get tourism uh, going again, hospitality industry thriving again? Well, that's a great question. We actually had tourist stakeholders at our finance committee recently. And you know what they told us? They said, listen, we're hurting because we were the first ones to shut down. We will be the last ones to reopen. We're hurting big time. But we're not looking for handouts. We're looking for a safe and gradual reopening of the, of the economy that makes sense. Now, instead of coming forward with a plan to reopen the economy in this budget, what the Trudeau Liberals did is they came up with, oh, we'll borrow more money and here's another $500 million, which we'll designate for the tourist sector. But that half a billion dollars for the tourism sector is spread across the country and on top of that, it's going to be administered by the regional development agencies. John, you're familiar with those. We, you know, Western Economic Development, 
um, and organizations like that. The problem is, this is not emergency support for the tourist sector. This money has to be used to help the sector adapt to some of the health related infrastructure they've had to put in place. Well, how does that help a tourist operator today survive and make it through the pandemic when this money can only be applied for adaptation? Most of these companies are simply looking to survive, not adapt to a new changing environment. They need to survive. And then maybe they can talk about adaptation. So the best way of getting tourism back up and running is to reopen the economy, and, but do it safely. And uh, unfortunately, the budget had no plan to do that whatsoever. It didn't even have money in it to ramp up vaccinations for Canadians. Very disappointing. So that leads to a question that Graham raises. Uh, Graham is asking about how do we encourage foreign business investment to come back to Canada? I saw you get on countless planes, or at least I knew you were getting on countless planes when you were international trade minister. And one of the things that you did to encourage investment in Canada was to uh, work ceaselessly to expand our free trade abroad. Um, can you comment on Graham's question? And then Ian, I'm gonna ask you as well, what you think about how we bring foreign business investment uh, back to Canada. Well, the biggest challenge I believe uh, to welcoming foreign investment to Canada is the fact that Canada has now developed a reputation around the world as a place you don't wanna invest in. You can't get projects approved in a timely way they're gonna to be too expensive. And halfway through the project, just as likely they're gonna be canceled by the government stepping in. So the global community no longer has any confidence in the ability to, for our country to provide investors with a safe place to invest. So you need massive regulatory change. We have to send a clear signal to the world we're open for business again. And that's certainly not going to happen under Justin Trudeau. In fact, in this recent budget, instead of you know, telling the world, listen, we want you to invest in our resource sector, he turned his back on them. In fact, in the one area where there was some tax relief, it was for carbon capture, utilization, and storage. The budget creates a new tax credit for that but they explicitly included a provision that says you cannot use it for the oil and gas sector. So the Trudeau government has completely pivoted away from what historically has been one of the key drivers of economic prosperity in our country. We need, we need to get rid of Bill C-69, Bill C-48, the uh, anti-tanker ban, that was imposed by the Trudeau Liberals. We need to send a clear message to the world that we're gonna be open again. That will likely not happen until we have a new conservative government. Ian, do you wanna comment on that? Uh, you are- um... that I'm not quite qualified in, but I do believe in what Ed's saying is that we're continuing to find bottlenecks and challenges 
For example, I go back to 1913. We brought in 400,000 new Canadians when our population was 6 million. Today, we're hoping to get in 400,000 Canadians, and they're still waiting to get approved. So we need to bring in quality people, but re just reduce some of the bureaucracy. We'd spend all this money. Why can't we accelerate and fast-track quality people to put them to work in Canada? There's so many opportunities. We have people sitting right now that are waiting to get qualified to be working in Canada for two or three years. They have specialty degrees. So we need to work on our biggest resource, which is the quality of people that we have, and open our arms to other people who come in from other countries. How we do that isn't an area that I'm not knowledgeable, that I'm not knowledgeable in, but uh, we are not open for business to the extent that we could be open for business. We have to do a lot more to let other people know. Some of the things that are happening, though, for example, south of the border, we've lost a lot of people to Silicon Valley in the IT business. Well, recently, during the Trump administration, these people were blocked from going to the U.S., so they've ended up in Vancouver. And one of my clients said, I used to be the smartest guy in the office. Now he says there's 10 guys ahead of me. They're from China and Vietnam and Thailand, and they're all working in the Microsoft office in Vancouver now. And their cost to hire these guys is a lot cheaper than it is to have them work in Silicon Valley or even as book in Seattle. So our Canadian dollar still makes us a very appealing in terms of U.S. companies hiring Canadians. So there's things we could be doing in that area. Okay, so both Ian um, and Ed, we've got questions pouring in, and uh, there's some really interesting ones here. So I'm going to get you to try and uh, abbreviate your answers. Pretend you're in question period. You've got that 60 seconds. Um, I'm going to combine two questions here from Joseph McDaniel and Klaus Jensen. So Klaus puts it this way, how could anyone compete with the Liberals in their vote buying? They're using taxpayers' money to buy votes. How can the Conservatives compete with that? And Joseph McDaniel Daniel puts the same question in a different way. What are the short and long-term impacts of this budget? Um, Ed, very political question. I'm going to go to you with this. Well, in terms of the short-term impacts of the budget, remember the budget it's the biggest spending budget in Canadian history. So it's an avalanche of spending, including this so-called stimulus spending, which is pumping billions and billions and billions of dollars into our economy, which might spur short-term growth. The problem is it will likely also stoke inflationary pressures. When you have inflation, that's quickly followed by interest rate rises. And you know a lot of Canadians will be concerned because they've taken on big mortgages, big debt, and even a 1% increase in interest rates could really impair their ability, uh, their, their financial uh, viability. And so that's one of the key things I'm looking for coming out of this budget. Uh, the minister didn't have to pump $100 billion of stimulus into the economy. She chose to do that. And only time will tell whether she, she was right in pumping it into the economy at this point in time, or whether this is going to stoke inflationary pressures. With respect to the second question, which is how do we compete with the liberals in terms of the money they're just blowing? Um, I think it's to be honest and open with Canadians about the state of our nation's finances and then come up with a suite of policies that actually make sense and inspire Canadians. I'm confident that Aaron O'Toole is working 
on a set of platform policies that are going to inspire Canadians, excite Canadians, and we'll be able to take door to door and say, you know what, folks, we've got a leader who understands what Canada needs, and it's not just spending, because spending is not in itself an economic plan. But we've got policies that are going to grow our economy, that are going to position us for long-term success. Ed, here's a question that uh, I, 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 it's going to be difficult, but I know you're going to want to answer it. It's from the former senior economist for the Royal Bank of Canada, uh, somebody who had three Harvard degrees, all for, in the economics area, and who served as the MLA for West Vancouver Capilano for countless years, was a beloved person and won the most votes uh, of all MLAs in the province year after year, Ralph Sultan asks this. He says that um, Finance Minister Freeland was on a podcast recently with the head of the IMF talking about childcare. Uh, I've heard you in the House speak about the Liberals' budget commitment to childcare. Could you try and encapsulate those comments for our audience tonight? Sure. Uh, thank you, Ralph, and thank you for your years of service. I very much appreciated the work you've done serving the people of British Columbia. On, on child care, uh, I'll tell you that in the lead up to the budget, I sent a letter to Minister Freeland outlining some of our must-haves for us to support her budget. One of those was, Minister, you need to include something in the budget that is going to help Canadian women who want to engage in the workforce to do so because we have the baby boomers exiting the labor force. We have to backfill that. There's nothing better than maximizing the value of the women in our economy, in our country to do that, but they're gonna need support. The question is, how do we do that? Is it through a national universal regulated licensed daycare program that leaves many, many families out or do you come up with a plan that includes all Canadian families? And my fear is this, um, like so many other liberal initiatives, this is likely gonna be a big, big spending initiative. We know it's gonna cost anywhere from six to $9 billion a year going forward. And it's gonna be a program that is likely gonna be run by the federal government and is going to leave so many parents that are doing shift work, that are gig workers, that work the night shift, or that have their neighbors or friends or relatives taking care of the kids, they're gonna be left out. And with so many liberal programs that I've seen in the past, these programs, they effectively collapse on each other. And the other problem is of course, that it's gonna take years for the, the federal liberal government to negotiate these childcare agreements with the provinces. In fact, Minister Freeland has admitted it's gonna be at least five years before you see daycare rates at $10 per day, because it's gonna take that long to negotiate with the provinces. What happens in the meantime? There's gotta be a better way of getting that support to women, to parents across our country, I want to engage in the workforce. 
I believe that we as conservatives are going to be coming forward with a very clear plan on how to do that, how to do that effectively and responsibly. And thank you. And Ralph, thank you for that great question. And I'll add echoing um, Ed's uh, gratitude for your years of service. Um, now, while we get into the next question, there's going to be two polls that will come up on your screen. Uh, one will ask if you live in the, the riding that uh, I hope one day again to represent in the House of Commons, and the other will be uh, how you may be leaning in your vote. This, among other things, will help you um, not be bothered by the Conservative Party in future. So it is in your interest to answer. So let me ask, ask these two questions, and they come from two gentlemen who are really committed to service. There's a, a different questions, but a common theme here. One comes from somebody who is very active in the West Vancouver community in helping people with um, things like divorce care and other things. I know he's very active in his church. This is Ken Davis. And he asks, uh, is there some way to provide income tax deductions to um, reward those who've been the frontline workers for, for whom um, all Canadians have a real debt of gratitude? Similar in theme to Ken's question is Stephen Clark, who uh, was in the armed forces. Uh, so he offered his service in a different way. Uh, he's a Squamish resident and he asks, how can working class Canadians do something to help get our economy back. So I know both Ken and Stephen are asking from a devoted Canadian citizen perspective, what can we do in, in future budgets or future policies, Ed, to get our economy rolling? Well, let me say up front that uh, those Canadians who've been on the front lines, who've risked their health, many cases, uh, tremendous stress on family life to serve us during this COVID pandemic. Thank you uh, to all of you. Um, we should as Canadians be doing everything we can to recognize that service. Whether you serve defending our country abroad or here at home, or whether you serve on the front lines in the hospitals and uh, in the healthcare facilities across our province and across our country, we owe you a debt of gratitude. Now, how we actually reflect that debt, obviously uh, is done uh, with thoughtfulness. We want to take great care as we do that. By the way, those discussions are ongoing in, in Ottawa because most parliamentarians recognize that we need to recognize those that have really sacrifice the most to help all of us get through this pandemic. And what I can assure you is that when I go back to Ottawa, actually I'm in Ottawa right now, but as I go back to my colleagues, as we meet as a caucus, I will continue to raise that as an opportunity for us to do, do right by uh, all of the people that have served so selflessly on the front lines during this very difficult time for our nation. Thank you, Ed. I'm really pleased there are a lot of young people on this call tonight. I think if there's one thing that encourages me, it's when young people like um, Cole Vincent uh, get on the line, ask questions, get involved, and want to volunteer. Um, Cole's question goes back to this uh, uh, thing that you were talking about earlier about the threat of 
the liberals imposing uh, a tax on home equity. Uh, Cole has a different take on it. Interesting for a young person. He's worried that um, Canadians uh, or non-Canadians for that matter can take advantage of the principal residence exemption by moving from place to place and then picking and choosing which home, so-called home would get the benefit of that exemption. So he's asking, is there something that we should be doing to curtail your um, latitude when you're choosing which house uh, to consider the principal residence for purposes of taxes? Ed and then Ian, and I'm gonna ask you to be brief because uh, we've got a couple more questions to cover before we wrap it up tonight. Actually, that's a very, very good question. It has to do with uh, the whole issue of housing affordability for Canadians and how we have established um, how we treat personal residences for taxation purposes. Um, now, I wanna be very, very clear. I'm not in favor of a home equity tax, unlike uh, uh, some people in Ottawa. Our colleague, the uh, Liberal MP for one of the Toronto ridings, Adam Vaughan, has openly mused and suggested that maybe a home equity tax is the way to go. Uh, I profoundly disagree with that. But that said, we do have a challenge with uh, foreign ownership of housing in Canada. This budget imposes a 1% tax on foreign owners of residential housing that is vacant. So it's vacant housing that foreigners own. Now think about this. Over the last, say, 10 years, you know, what's been the average appreciation of a home each year? Two, three, five percent. In the last few years, it's been 10 and 15 and 20 and 25% in one year. What's a foreign owner going to think about a 1% tax? They're gonna treat it as a cost of doing business. This 1% tax will have no impact on housing affordability in Canada, and it will not help to stabilize housing prices in Canada. We have to come up with better solutions. My colleague, Brad Viss, who's the member of parliament for Mission Matsby Fraser Canyon used to work for me and now is an MP in his own right. He is our MP. housing critic. He's our party's housing critic. I can tell you he has been very busy working on putting together a policy that we will profile in our election platform. And that housing policy, I'm confident, is going to substantively address the issue of housing affordability in Canada and how we address issues such as foreign ownership and dirty money, money coming into Canada being laundered into our housing market, all of those things. I can tell you that he's working very hard on that. I'm confident we as Conservatives are going to have a much better substantive approach to this issue than our Liberal friends. Ian, uh, you think a lot about um your clients' investment in their homes. Uh, do you have a, a quick response to that one? Uh, Cole Vincent's question, should there be some limitation or increased limitation on which house you choose to be your principal residence for capital gains purposes? 
West Vancouver, John, we have 20% of the people in West Vancouver own another house. And if you look at uh, Canada, we have 71% of people own their own home. So housing is a very touchy area, as Ed alluded to earlier. I do think that we should charge a tax at a higher rate for people who flip homes. They move in for a year, sell them, and they build another house and so on. Uh, I think if you get into that area, how much revenue you're going to generate by the choice of principal residences, I don't think will be that large. So I think there's other ways to collect additional revenue. As Ed mentioned earlier, uh, the 1% tax is very small because look at the Canadian dollar. That goes up as it was 75 cents to 80. If you're in Hong Kong, that dollar change has cost you a lot more than the tax. So it's a very interesting area. But uh, I think we can find better ways of collecting revenue and charging on that uh, change at the choice of ownership. Okay, well, here's a question from somebody who uh, is one of the most learned uh, that I know when it comes to the matters of the environment and fisheries. Um, he lives in North Vancouver and he cares a lot about Canada and its environment. And I'm glad to say, uh, by the way, uh, to this person, Peter Cron, you probably know that Aaron O'Toole has a very robust environmental policy that he talked about on things that matter just a couple of weeks ago. So Peter asked the following question and uh, Ed, admittedly, this isn't in your wheelhouse necessarily of expertise, but I'm, I'm going to uh, see what you have to say about it. Uh, Peter says that the sport fishery is worth over a billion dollars and 9,000 jobs. And um, he says the commercial and First Nations, uh, perhaps uh, another $2 billion. So at any rate, it's a large industry. The minister is shutting down that industry for the third time in a row. Peter says, do you have any thoughts about that? And I have to say that, you know, I fought to preserve the Department of Fisheries Research Laboratory in our riding. And uh, it's something that people in our area really care a lot about fishery and the sports fishery. Well, John, I care very much about the sports fishery. Having been on the Fraser um, on more than one occasion, fishing for both salmon and sturgeon, by the way. Sturgeon. Um, there's a big problem here in British Columbia. I mean, we, we have a declining wild salmon population. And I have yet to meet one British Columbian who says, you know, we should just fish the resource until it's all gone. Nobody wants that. We all want to see our wild salmon stocks enhanced. We want to see them recover. But we have a government in Ottawa and a minister, Minister Jordan, who just doesn't want to list, listen to our recreational anglers, who are some of the best conservationists in the country. They care about the wild salmon. They care about habitat. And yet she has not listened to these fishers. And she has said, you know what? The best way of addressing this is simply to shut down the recreational angling industry, the public fishery, just shut it down. So we have closures in the Southern coast, in the, on the ocean, on the Fraser River, where recreational anglers don't have the opportunity to fish for species of salmon. And there are some logical solutions to this, which Peter understands even better than I do. But there's solutions such as using selective angling technology, 
which discriminate between the salmon species you don't want to catch and the ones you do want to catch. There's such things as using hatchery technology where you clip the adipose fin of hatchery fish. So these fish go out into the salt chuck and our fishermen, many of whom are coming from abroad to catch one or two fish, they get a chance to keep a fish because it's a hatchery fish, not a wild fish. And by clipping the adipose fin, you can check whether that fish is a wild or a hatchery fish. These are technologies that are available, that are proven, that are being used in places like Oregon, like Washington State, yet somehow in British Columbia, our federal government, our minister, will not implement these strategies. By the way, I wanna say one third thing. Because Peter's on the line, Peter has a real heart for this industry. He wants to preserve the wild salmon. But you know, we've got fishing technologies such as gill netting that are harmful to fish that you don't necessarily want to catch. So these fish are called bycatch. They're the fish you don't want to catch, but they get their gills get hooked up in the net. And so when they get thrown back, they've been damaged and they die, or they become easy prey for seals, for example. How do you avoid that? Well, Peter is coming up with a unique technology where fish can be funneled into a trap system where they can be selectively harvested and the fish that would normally be bycatch are not allowed to be caught, they're just released unharmed. And Peter's onto something here. He's developing this technology. Hopefully our fishing authorities actually glom onto this idea and provide the support that Peter needs to get this technology off the ground. It's great to hear fellow British Columbians who are passionate about our fishery. And uh, I would love to be back on that fishery committee if I do get reelected. Uh, there are so many people who know so much who would equip a representative to do a great job on that regard. Well, let me um, get you first, Ian, and then you, Ed, to sum up. I'm going to uh, perhaps um, lead you a little bit with your summary by bringing together a couple of questions that we haven't got to. And I'm gonna to apologize to all of the questioners uh, who I didn't get to. Uh, thank you for your questions tonight. Davood Gavami, whom you know well, Ed, he's the head of the Iranian Canadian Congress and is responsible for a fulsome celebration of intercultural activity in the North Shore with the annual Nehru's celebrations. Uh, he's asking a question that touches on things we've um, discussed time and again this evening. How do you balance the budget? How can conservatives balance the budget going forward given the, the, the difficult hole that the liberals have dug? And Doug Neal asks a different question, but I think it's related. He says, how does this budget affect young voters? because it's the young voters who are gonna be impacted, isn't it? By the future consequences of reckless action. So we're gonna reverse the order. Ian, you go first and then Ed, um, you uh, please follow and then I'll try and um, sum it all up. Ian. 
Thank you, John. I think one thing that we're dealing with, unfortunately, and this has been permeating through the economies of not just Canada, but other countries for some time, is this theory of the modern monetary theory. It seems to me that everyone, and I'm not just talking about Canada, but a lot of these countries are kicking the can down the road in terms of debt servicing. And these lower interest rates have created that, that philosophy and that and seems that the Trudeau government has embraced it dramatically. It seems to me that there's no real awareness being created about the consequences of carrying this huge debt. And so unfortunately, uh, we're all caught up in the situation we're spending is at such a large rate that nobody's looking at the effect down the road. And I think it's part of our job to show a huge part, as we talked tonight, to show fiscal responsibility. How we're going to solve this debt, as you mentioned earlier in the beginning of the speech, is to increase the, the, the GDP. So we, of course, have to put incentives to, to increase the GDP, but also not to tax people. Remember a government in such a way that a good parasite does not kill its host. And so taxation is like the art of getting the most amount of feathers out of the goose with the least amount of hissing. So the challenge good government has is to create a situation to stimulate the economy, to focus on a plan. And this is what Ed talked about earlier. There's no plan in this government. There's no plan that people can embrace. And I think coming back to an earlier question I didn't answer was how do we get reelected? I think we have to articulate our plan as conservatives to people so they that can be laid out in a very simple way that they understand where we're going. We don't see a plan from the Liberals. So we have to focus on what we do best and stay true to ourselves and focus on being a fiscally responsible. That, that to me makes sense. And we have a job to bring that awareness to younger Canadians and help them recognize that we can work towards work together. Thank you. Ian, thank you. Uh, Ian says the Liberals don't have a plan. Ed, does someone else have a plan? Well, we are going to have a sound fiscal plan for our country. Uh, your question had a number of different parts, so I'll try to quickly address each one of them. Uh, first of all, let me talk to the young voters that are on this uh, webinar. You know, um, I, 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 I love to see the excitement, the vigor, the energy in, our, in the youth of our country. We have dealt them a really terrible blow by overnight imposing a debt on them that one prime minister has accumulated um, when the previous 23 prime ministers couldn't accumulate that much over our entire history. This is a massive, massive financial obligation and it's future generations of Canadians are going to have to carry that. I want them to have a light at the end of the tunnel where the next generations of Canadians can say, you know what, despite the fact that we've been saddled with this really big financial consequence, we still have hope because of the way this is being managed. I can tell you that the mandate letter uh, that the Minister of Finance, Christian Freeland received from Justin Trudeau as recently as January 15th, set out three things. It said, Minister, no new permanent spending. Minister, you have to come up with a debt 
management strategy. And minister, you need to have a fiscal anchor. She delivered none of them in her budget. How quickly liberals forget their commitments. And because they forgot that, they came up with the biggest spending budget in Canadian history with no idea of how this will be managed going forward. Having said that, I do believe that this massive financial consequence can be managed in a way that gives our future Canadians lots of hope. And it's something that I told Minister Freeland, I told her, it's not the quantity of the spending minister, it's the quality of the spending. If you spend in the right places and you make the right investments in long-term growth, the things I mentioned in my opening comments, and there's a whole array of them that would improve the productivity of our economy, that would improve the ability of Canadian companies to compete on the world stage, competitiveness. We can do this, but it's going to require discipline. It's going to require commitment. It's going to require us to prioritize. What is the priority? And once we make those key decisions, and the most important one is who's going to lead our country going forward. I hope it's a conservative government because we've got some really good ideas how to lead this country out of the pandemic and to a bright future. I have great hope for this country. We have a bright future, but we're going to have to all get together and exercise discipline, and foresight, and great vision. You know, Ed and Ian and um, everyone in the audience, uh, there was a theme this evening. I don't, I don't know if you noticed it, but whether it was fisheries or whether it was debt or whether it was youth or whether it was uh, house equity, the theme was long-term thinking, vision. And First Nations people like to say that you should contemplate for seven generations the consequences of your words and your actions. I do believe that's our essential role as government to control is not our government's purpose. It's to create peace, order, and good government. To intrude is not the, um, the role of government. And for me, an intrusive, growing government is not a government that's there to help our individuals, our freedoms, or the excellence of people and communities. And to me, that's what government should be doing. And that's why I'm running to be a member of parliament again. I believe in our country. I think that our institutions are sound, they're not perfect, but they at least reward Canadians who believe in them. So thank you all for being here tonight. I hope you'll come back June 3rd for uh, a, a webinar that will dovetail nicely with our thoughts from this evening about promoting excellence and equality for generations to come. Thank you again, and I wish you all a good evening. Thank you, John.